This is a presentation of the Pitch Podcast Network. Hello, 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 and welcome to Streetwise, the podcast extension of the Pitch in Kansas City. I'm your host and the editor-in-chief of The Pitch, Brock Wilbur. How is everybody out there? I will tell you a thing about me. Um, Don't often like to take things from therapy and bring them directly to the show, like I'm some sort of Frasier crane, Uh, but uh, this week's one feels like it might uh, resonate with some of you. Uh, I was listing off a series of issues I'm having, a series of things that like my normal coping mechanisms don't work for, a series of things that have gotten under my skin in an odd way, uh, where even I'm surprised by my reactions to them or my level of frustration or, or whatever it may be, uh, and realize that there's a, a through line through all of it, uh, which is that um, I was ill-prepared for everything to go back to normal. It was a year and a half, kind of got into the groove of what we were doing, figured out how to make my way in the world doing that and be okay and happy-ish as well as one could, uh, remote and doing things in my own time and wearing nothing but sweatpants. Uh, and now just thrown real back, just thrown back, uh, real, real hard into, uh, in a normal world where like everyone's back at the office and, uh, and I've got a wedding coming up. Um, I, I just don't think I was ready for that. Part of it is that I, I, I think I thought in my mind that there would be a ramp up into this where I could be like, all right, I am getting back into shape. And this 15 to 20 pounds I gained in uh, quarantine, that'll go away. So when people see me again for the first time, it'll it'll be like it was. Uh, and instead and look, I'm everyone everyone got got some core weight like that's you you know how do you work on your core core uh you you can also not work on your core uh and and we all collectively did that and i i hope that the world does not judge but also like that has been the result of me being like well i've got a wedding coming up uh i'm not sure if any of my suits fit um and also like some of my best suits uh are in pretty bad shape because I'd worn them uh, previous to the pandemic and then just sort of kept them in the corner of the closet because uh, why was there any reason to go to a dry cleaners at any point in the last year and a half? There's never a reason to wear suits. So I'm like, okay, those those are going to take a little extra cleaning to get through. Um, in the office, it is just very fun to be in a place where I have completely forgotten the skills required to do office banter uh just uh when somebody uh pops in to talk about a tv show or what they did over the weekend i i i I just look at them because like i'm used to being in that office uh completely and utterly alone and uh if if you want to talk about uh falcon and the winter soldier i'm just like i i lost i lost the part of the the brain that allows me to do banter back and forth in that way i'm just like okay thank you for what you've said. That's, that's about what I've got. Um, so yeah, there are so many things, uh, and, and these are smaller examples than the, the bigger ones, but uh, just a lot of like, 
Oh, I was real depressed for everyone to go away, uh, and now I'm real stressed out for everyone to come back what feels like almost too quickly. And thank God that everyone's fine and that we, we seem to be doing a pretty okay job about it as we reopen and everyone in my office is vaxxed and not too worried, but we still wear the masks everywhere. Yada, yada, yada. It's, it's, it's fine and it's, it's panning out. It's just, um, I don't know. I thought it would be maybe September. Uh, I thought maybe we'd start with a person or two in the office and then ramp up. Uh, and, and instead it went from, Brock's private little uh, bachelor pad hidey hole uh, to everyone being back and like uh, waiting in line for the coffee machine. Like it's stuff that I'd forgotten that we did. Like I, I'm having to remember the existence of civilization and it it, it flusters me. Uh, so <laughs> uh, I'm hoping that this adjustment period goes faster. I, I mean, I'm just so happy to see people again. I'm such a social butterfly. It's not an issue issue it's just one of those things that i'm like ah i didn't know that i wasn't ready for this i spent the entire year being like can't wait till everything is normal and now that everything is normal it feels weird <laughs> so that's what frustrates me anyway we've got a great episode of streetwise uh, for you today i uh, got a great interview coming up got next music corner got a cool reading but first off here I wanted to let you know uh, that today's episode is brought to you by the Alibi Bar, the pop-up bar. It is at 4118 Pennsylvania Avenue in Kansas City, Missouri, inside the Firefly Lounge. It's open Thursdays through Sundays, 7 p.m. to 1.30 a.m. through the month of May. Uh, So uh, this is a true crime-themed pop-up bar. Yes. Uh, So if you are a person that listens to a lot of true crime podcasts or marathons, whatever nonsense uh, Netflix has coming out week by week, Why Did You Kill Me is one that just released that takes place almost entirely within uh, recreations on MySpace, uh, which is a a bizarre, otherworldly thing to watch. Um, Yeah, this is this is going to be the spot for you. Uh, Anyway, they are excited to uh, bring this genre of entertainment to life with artwork made in-house and reflecting different true crimes throughout history. There's a bunch of themed cocktails made by co-owner Scott Helling, formerly the lead mixologist for the Apparition Pop-Up Bar. So you know these guys if you've been to any of the pop-up bars in the last couple of years. They've been doing a lot of them. Uh, Come join armchair detectives to figure out the whodunit table games or just talk theories and share stories. Uh, They'll also be doing true crime trivia every Thursday for those that want to prove uh, that, uh, you know, it it was probably an owl. It was definitely an owl. Man didn't push her down the staircase. It was an owl. If you haven't watched The Staircase, that's that's one for me. It is is a documentary that leaves out uh, one of the most prevalent theories about a murder. Uh, Just one of the most bizarre true crime things for us to experience in the last few years. And that's out there. Uh, so that is 4118 Pennsylvania Avenue, KCMO, inside the Firefly Lounge. That's the Alibi True Crime pop-up bar. Uh, and they have brought us the podcast to you today. Here is our reading for the day. Uh, it is a history of barbecue in Kansas City, uh, a fairly exhaustive history. In fact, it wasn't supposed to be nearly this long, but the author turned in uh, something in the realm of 6,000 plus words to me. And I was like, 
Okay, well, for your first piece with us, this is a novella, and we're going to need to cut that down. Uh, so this is uh, Smoker Gets in Your Eyes by uh, Savannah Hawley, uh, as read by our friend Jason from Stolen Dress Entertainment. Jason, take it away. Smoker Gets in Your Eyes. Our city's barbecue is sweet and spicy, but its history is slow-cooked. By Savannah Hawley. The year was 1869, and hundreds of people gathered to celebrate the opening of the first Hannibal Bridge, the first permanent railroad bridge to cross the Missouri River. The opening was celebrated with a parade and a barbecue. In 1880, thousands of Kansas Cityans gathered to celebrate the completion of an eight-years-long railroad connection project. On the front page of the first edition of the Kansas City Star, then the Kansas City Evening Star, an article about the event was published. The Grand Barbecue was a foreshadowing sign of a strong tradition to come. The author wrote that, A grand old-fashioned barbecue was determined upon, the event celebrated in a manner and style peculiarly characteristic of Kansas City pluck and enterprise. This was the beginning of barbecue in Kansas City. Pluck indeed. Barbecue is an ancient art. Virtually every culture around the world finds evidence of meat being smoked over an open fire pit. Barbecue in the United States likely finds its origins in the indigenous Taino people. The Taino word barabiku can be broken down into four parts, ba for baba or father, ra for yara or fire, bi for bibi or beginning, and ku for guaku, the sacred fire. Barbecue in its roots refers to the sacred fire pit. Before barbecue turned into restaurants and counter service joints serving up an array of meats in a specific style, it was a tool that enabled mass cooking of large portions of meat to feed crowds of people. Indigenous tribes used it in the Caribbean, and it was spread through colonization and slavery to the Upper Americas and woven into colonial American culture. To understand American barbecue better, you have to understand how each region's traditional barbecue came to be. Virginia and the Carolinas are most likely the birthplace of American barbecue. In Virginia, British colonists used the Native American method of drying meat over fire on a grill made of green wood, later marrying that method with the British method of spit-cooking hogs and other small animals. When enslaved Africans were taken and brought to the colonies, they brought their use of spices, especially red pepper, with them. The spices, combined with colonists' cooking techniques, created barbecue sauce. North Carolina's vinegar-based sauce developed from the British tradition of basting meats in butter or vinegar to keep the meat from drying out. In South Carolina, a mustard-based sauce came from a large population of French and German immigrants. Because it was a popular port along the Mississippi River, Memphis was privy to ingredients not found in other locales. Molasses, which was shipped upriver, and tomatoes were mixed with other spices to form Memphis's sweet tomato barbecue sauce. Pork is the purest choice for barbecue. Whole hogs were the original choice in southern barbecuing since they were a cheap, low-maintenance source for meat. Cows needed more land, feed, and space than pigs, and pigs could be set free to roam and eat in forests when money was tight. Pork was so popular in the South that it became a point of pride. At one point, Southerners refused to export the pigs they raised to the northern states, and in the years leading up to the Civil War, Southerners ate an average of five pounds of pork for each pound of cattle. In Texas, however, the story is quite different. German and Czech immigrants had the space and means to raise cattle, so Texas barbecue is cow-based. Brisket and sausage barbecue were developed there. Barbecuing gave Texans, especially those that could not afford the so-called good cuts of beef, time to cook and tenderize the meat into a dish brimming with flavor. One thing that cannot be forgotten about barbecue is the enslaved hands that made it the cuisine we know today. People will tell you with pride that barbecue takes the worst cuts of meat and turns them into a delicacy. This is true, of course, 
but it is so because of what was offered to and kept from those who were forcibly displaced from their homelands. The term pitmaster originated from its reference to an elderly enslaved person who cooked and oversaw the barbecue at the command of slave owners. The processes and traditions of barbecue form were passed down to those who worked under the pitmaster, solidifying the culinary art form. Colonists and European immigrants added to barbecue with their mustards and vinegars, but American barbecue was made by enslaved Africans. They fostered the traditions of barbecue and built upon them. They dug the pits, laid the wood, tended to the coals, and basted the meats. They spent sleepless nights constantly supervising the delicacies only to serve slave owners and politicians, often one and the same, at rallies and large events that celebrated the United States when they had no freedom themselves. Such is the irony of barbecue. It is the worst cuts of meat made the most desirable by its careful and laborious cooking process. It is a celebratory American tradition, taken from the indigenous people and developed by enslaved people in a country that oppressed them for hundreds of years. This irony continued as barbecue developed. Black people were the entrepreneurs that brought American barbecue to the masses in virtually all of its main locales. During Jim Crow, when black people were relegated to separate spheres, white people still came to their neighborhoods to dine on the relaxed but succulent fare. Rich people would ignore their etiquette and eat with their hands, class forgotten in chase of the enticing meat. Journalist Jonathan Daniels, writing in the mid-20th century, said that barbecue is the dish which binds together the taste of both the people of the big house and the poorest occupants of the back end of the broken-down barn. It held true then, and it continues to hold true today. Barbecue brought people together when nothing else did, and pride in this culture is firmly cemented across the barbecue belt. Each new style of barbecue built on another as traditions were passed down and people moved to different places. The Great Migration brought barbecue to further prominence in the North and West states. Henry Perry is Kansas City's example of this migration and the forefather of our beloved barbecue. The Henry Perry Effect Henry Perry was born in Shelby County, Tennessee, near Memphis and the Mississippi River, in 1875, just in between those two grand barbecues that Kansas City celebrated. As a teenager, Perry worked in steamboat kitchens on the river before eventually moving to Kansas City in 1907. Barbecue existed in the region before Perry. It was likely brought here by those who moved just before the Great Migration enticed by a booming city with plenty of work on railroads and in the stockyards. But nonetheless, Perry made Kansas City-style barbecue into the popular tradition he began and passed down to his apprentices. After moving to the city to do work at a saloon in Quality Hill, Perry decided to venture on his own and began selling his queue in 1908. From his original stand in a garment district alley, Perry sold beef and pork, as well as game like a possum, raccoon, and woodchuck for 25 cents. The offerings Perry sold from his barbecue stand marked his first unique departure in barbecue style. While Perry was of course inspired by his Memphis roots, what with his sauce and cooking process, the range of meats he offered was and has continued to be a uniquely Kansas City phenomenon. Pork in the South, beef in Texas, but in Kansas City there's always been a variety although things like raccoon and woodchuck won't make it to your plate anymore. Perry's barbecue operation gained such notoriety that he soon moved it to 17th and Lydia, then 19th and Highland, in an old trolley barn that he cooked from during the Pendergast era of the 20s and 30s, when the city was wide open during Prohibition. His meat still sold to rich and poor, black and white alike, for 25 cents. Perry traditionally smoked his barbecue over oak and hickory wood until it was juicy and tender. Then there was his sauce, Fans of Kansas City-style sauce, a sort of sweet and tangy concoction that typically has a molasses base, probably wouldn't recognize Perry's harsh and peppery version. 
Legend has it that Perry used to love seeing people sweat over his sauce that took years to acclimate to. Even when Perry was pioneering the best style of barbecue in the United States, there was plenty of competition. A 1932 article in The Call, for which Perry was interviewed, noted that there were more than a thousand barbecue stands in the city. Even then, Perry held true to his training and traditions, telling The Call that there is only one way to cook barbecue, and that is the way I am doing it, over a wood fire with a properly constructed oven and pit. Perry's stubborn adherence to a specific way of doing things earned him the memory of the father of Kansas City barbecue. The other 999 stands he was up against serve their purpose, but are lost from the collective memory. Perry's, however, continues with us and is threaded through every decision local pitmasters make today. Traditions of Perry's can be found in nearly every barbecue joint in the city. If they're not, many purists will say it's not truly Kansas City style. Smoking the meat over a wood fire, especially using hickory wood, offering an array of sauces, although none as peppery as Perry's, and serving up every sort of meat available are Perry's tried-and-true staples that are still passed down today. Perry's Death and Disciples Henry Perry died in 1940 and left behind him a tradition of barbecue to uphold. Upon his death, Perry left one of his three restaurants, Perry's Number 2, to Charlie Bryant. An apprentice of Perry, Bryant was committed to upholding his traditions and style of barbecuing. Charlie ran the spot with his brother, Arthur, who came to Kansas City from Texas in 1931 to join his brother and work for Perry. In 1946, Charlie retired and left the restaurant to Arthur, who changed the name to Arthur Bryant's. This is when the slight modifications to Perry's style of barbecue began. Bryant changed Perry's sauce to be more palatable. Perry's was too harsh and peppery, and Bryant wanted it to be appetizing to more people. Even this change didn't come lightly for the second generation of Perry's barbecue. In the book Smokestack Lightning, Adventures in the Heart of Barbecue County, Bryant is clear that the change in the recipe didn't come as means to alter Perry's traditions. Instead, Bryant said that, I didn't come up with something new, just revised what we already had. The sauce was too hot for a lot of people, so I decided to cut out a little of the pepper. I said we should make it a pleasure to eat, and that's exactly what we did. Bryant's burnt ends are perhaps one of the most iconic dishes in Kansas City-style barbecue. Originally, the dish came only upon request. Burnt ends, or the burned edges of the brisket, were cut off at Bryant's and slid to the side of the counter. Calvin Trillin, a journalist who helped Kansas City reach national renown, wrote in a 1972 Playboy article that Arthur Bryant's is the single best restaurant in the world. While extolling the burnt ends in that article, Trillin wrote that, Sometimes... When I'm in some awful, overpriced restaurant in some strange town, trying to choke down some $3 hamburger that tastes like a burned sponge, a blank look comes over me. I have just realized that at that very moment, someone in Kansas City is being given those burned edges for free. Arthur Bryant served celebrities, politicians, and everyday people alike. Bryant grew and maintained the restaurant to be a fixture of Kansas City barbecue and, upon his death in 1982, it stayed in the family for a few years before Bill Rauschelbach and Gary Berbiglia bought part ownership. Although the restaurant had new owners, the recipes and sauce were barely altered and are still one of the few places you can taste Perry's pure influence today. Connor Rauschelbach, general manager at Bryant's, says that burnt ends exist because of Bryant's. Arthur began serving them for free as people waited for his other delicious food. They were initially a byproduct of their time. Back then, the pits weren't temperature controlled, so meat would often come out burnt at the edges. Bryant would have the points of the tips of the brisket get a little bit burnt up. Instead of trying to slice that or serve that in a sandwich, he would instruct his pitmaster just to dice it up into bite-sized pieces, says Rauschelbach. When he had long lines, which was obviously regularly, 
he would put them on toothpicks, and he would walk them up and down the line, chatting with his guests and letting them taste a little bit more burnt side of the brisket. After a while, it became so popular that people were on him to put it on the menu, and he just eventually gave in and put them on the menu. As the burnt ends became more popular and technology evolved, Rauschelbach says that Bryant's had to change the recipe a bit. The technique for burnt ends was one of the only things to change since Arthur's death. They used to just dice up the brisket cold and put the sauce over it, says Rauschelbach. What we found was that when the brisket is cold like that, you're basically just throwing sauce on it instead of marinating it. So we pull the brisket right off the smoker now and dice it up hot and then marinate it with the sauce. We believe it's made the brisket a little bit more tender. Although burnt ends are what Bryant's is best known for, Arthur was quick to assert that everything was equally delicious. After all, that's what the process of barbecuing is supposed to do. In a 1979 Missouri Life article, Bryant said, In this grease house, there isn't a specialty. Don't have one. Everything you get here is jam up. I see to that myself. In the same year that Arthur took over what he lovingly referred to as the grease house from Charlie, another iconic barbecue restaurant opened up just a few blocks away. George and Arzelia Gates purchased Old Kentucky Barbecue on 19th and Vine in 1946. The restaurant was one of the original brick-and-mortar barbecue joints, but eventually fell into disrepair. George wanted to turn it into a tavern, but Arzelia disapproved of whiskey, so the restaurant stayed true to its barbecue roots. The secret weapon Gates had on his side was Arthur Pinkard, another disciple of Perry. Pinkard stayed on when Old Kentucky was purchased and taught George and his son Ollie, who would eventually take over the business, how to barbecue. They changed the name to Gates and Sons Barbecue in 1956. Pinkard and Gates continued their barbecue in the same ways that Perry did, with few alterations to the process. To this day, they still smoke their meat in a closed pit with three stages. The main departure from Perry's cue was the sauce that George and Arzelia created. Theirs is a tomato base with vinegar and many secret spices. It's thicker and brings balance to all of their meats. Equally as famous as the meat at Gates is the hospitality. For Arzelia, Ollie's daughter and granddaughter to the original Arzelia Gates, the entire endeavor has always focused on putting community first. I heard it was quite a lively and condensed period. That's when the city was very segregated, so you had all these people in one area that were doing everything, Gates says. The black dollar was right there in that area. My dad, Ollie, calls it the 20 blocks of black because we couldn't move outside of a given area, so we were just kind of contained. From that, people did like the taste of Gates, we stayed open until the wee hours of the morning like everybody else. We entertained jazz greats like Duke Ellington and Charlie Parker and Sarah Vaughn. We did have a lot of those guys that would come to eat, and we would have to stay open in order to give them something to eat. It just grew from there. Gates is focused on barbecue, to be sure. But part of building that barbecue empire that has served presidents, celebrities, and everyday Kansas Cityans has been continuing Perry's legacy in more ways than just smoking meat. While Perry served everyone, no matter their background, he was also intensely focused on helping his community. In 1920, Perry fed 1,000 people for free. This began a tradition, and each year, for four hours on one day, Perry would give free barbecue sandwiches to the elderly, the young, and anyone who was too poor to buy a meal. During his 1929 giveaway, he gave over 150 pounds of meat to the community. Gates continued Perry's spirit of helping build the community as much as he continued in Perry's cooking traditions. Ollie Gates, the son of George and Arzalea, and the man who made Gates into the institution it is today, spent the majority of his life working on building a better city. Arzalea thinks Gates' ties to the community are what makes their barbecue so special. My dad is so community-minded, and wherever one of the restaurants are, he tries to beautify everything around it and make people feel comfortable about coming in, Arzalea Gates says. 
with the street lights, beautification, and that kind of thing so people feel comfortable coming in and sitting down and having some Gates barbecue. The community has been so supportive of us in our efforts to be supportive of the city. Kansas City Creativity Today, Kansas City has over 100 barbecue restaurants, each one claiming to be more different and unique than the last. All of these places, though, showcase the creativity of barbecue that can exist even within a specific style. We're known for our use of all meats, rather than just pork or beef. We have an iconic slightly sweet and tangy sauce, and of course, we have burnt ends. But within that style, there lies a community with endless creativity. The use of most meats means that each place can experiment in their own niche. As a city, we kind of engulf anybody that was doing barbecue around the nation. If they've had something that was good, then we've kind of implemented it here, Rauschelbach says. For Deborah Jones, one half of the sister duo that runs Jones Barbecue, the utter variety of Kansas City-style barbecue all comes together in hickory wood. It's that wood that Perry used to start his empire that is necessary for true Kansas City flavor. The Jones sisters use an outdoor pit to barbecue, which inevitably attracts the attention of connoisseurs. The biggest break from tradition at Jones Barbecue may be that the restaurant is run by women. Jones is one of few women pitmasters in the area, and women are underrepresented in barbecue at large. Although Jones acknowledges that there aren't many women in her field, she was initially surprised to learn that she was an anomaly. I never look at it as pitmaster or none of that. It was just us trying to make a living, Jones says. It really throws me for the wild when I hear people say, oh, you're a pitmaster. I've been doing it a long time, but I guess I never looked at it like that. It's a male-dominated field. When people hear a woman is doing it, it just throws people for a loop. I guess people just don't think women do it. Jones wakes up to start the fire around 2 a.m., then spends her day taking laborious care of the meat that smokes over hickory logs, watching it and turning it with a fork. The sisters first learned from their father, Levy B. Jones Sr. He did barbecue from the 70s until his death. The sisters began helping him in the 80s, but due to his death and some family health issues, the Joneses didn't permanently open again until 2015. Their barbecue roots stretch over 50 years, and the Jones sisters think Kansas City barbecue is all about tradition. As long as there's a Jones barbecue, I've asked my family that if anything should happen, that they try and keep it traditional, Jones says. We have a fire and brick pit we burn by hickory wood. I've tried to keep that going. Like I say, it's not an easy job. One unique innovation from Jones is their barbecue vending machine. They cook platters fresh every day and stock the vending machine so people can get food and sauce if the restaurant is sold out or closed. Elsie's Barbecue has been open since 1986 and has been the go-to traditional queue spot for many. On February 17th, Elsie Richardson, the man behind Elsie's, died. There was an outpouring of support from people all around the city, showcasing respect for an outstanding character in the city's barbecue legacy. Tasha Hammett, Elsie's granddaughter, has been working at the restaurant with her grandfather since she was 12 years old and now runs the business's operations and management. She says what makes Elsie's so special is their commitment to top-tier flavor while still holding true to tradition with their barbecue process and their marketing. Our advertising is word of mouth, Hammett says. It's the best and it's free, and it's paid off for my grandfather. His products speak for themselves, and it makes them returning customers, and then it makes them tell their friends about it. Hammett says that Elsie's burnt ends are her favorite. The tenderness of the beef is a product of their pit cooking process, but its unique flavor comes from their secret seasonings, which have attracted a dedicated and growing following. I think it comes down to his flavor, his process of cooking his meat, and the fact that he fixes every item on his menu as if it's for himself, so he puts love in it, says Hammett.
My grandpa has an eclectic sauce that leaves that good taste. It matches well with the meat. He always smokes his meat over hickory for the flavor. He puts the seasoning on it so it can marinate while it's cooking. He's got a couple of secret weapons in his sauce that make it that perfect amount of sweet, but not too sweet. Elsie's still uses a three-tiered pit that sits in the middle of the building. The pit is the most traditional choice for the barbecue, and one that is no longer used in the majority of restaurants in Kansas City today. Joe's Kansas City opened in 1997, under its previous name, Oklahoma Joe's. The owners, Jeff and Joy Stillwater, headed a successful competition team called Slaughterhouse 5 before they decided to open a brick and mortar in a gas station. When they did open, crowds of people were drawn to their delicious barbecue and their alterations on regional classics. Ryan Barrows, vice president of operations at Joe's, says that the restaurants focus on specialty sandwiches, like their famous Z-Man sandwich, are what makes Joe's so special. It's also, he says, their commitment to the melting pot of barbecue that is Kansas City, like altering Carolina-style pulled pork to the local palate. Joe's broke the mold of what traditional barbecue was from some of the founding fathers, if you will, Barrow says. A lot of places it was you go in and order a half a pound of meat and a couple of side dishes. If you wanted a barbecue sandwich, you chose brisket or pork or ham. Even back then, Kansas City wasn't a pulled pork town as much as it is now. Sliced pork was more traditional. We feel pretty comfortable saying that we helped get pulled pork as it's accepted today in Kansas City, kind of on the map. Q39, which entered the barbecue scene in 2014, left its mark through its simple innovation. Things like making great barbecue at a sit-down, chef-driven restaurant and offering abundant side dishes set Q39 apart from other barbecue spots in the city. Their expansive menu includes such things as brisket burgers and even some vegetarian options, which you won't find at many other barbecue places. Rob McGee, chef and owner of Q39, believes that his knowledge of barbecue and market trends has made Q39 into a city-wide institution. It's been great tapping into the Kansas City market with barbecue, because I think everybody's first love of food in Kansas City is barbecue first, McGee says. McGee spent over 12 years on the competitive circuit. His highly decorated team showed that chef-driven barbecue could be competitive and win in Kansas City. When he opened Q39, McGee committed himself to doing that same competition barbecue in the restaurant while also providing a cushy atmosphere and open kitchen. I've helped position myself, Rob McGee, to be the barbecue expert in Kansas City. We're the leaders of innovation, and we're going to continue going as far as we can with barbecue to take care of every customer that walks in the door, says McGee. Both Joe's and Q39 use some combination of Southern Pride or Old Hickory Smokers, which are gas-fired and wood-assisted, but do not rely solely on wood. Relatively new to our barbecue scene is the offset smoker. In it, the meat smokes in a long horizontal chamber, while wood is burned in a firebox on the side, and requires new wood about every half hour. These smokers are used in the emerging craft barbecue scene, where cult favorites like Hart Barbecue and Chef J Barbecue propelled the offset smoker to popularity. Tyler Harp has always been around barbecue. His family started on the competitive barbecue circuit when he was only six years old, and all of his previous jobs surrounded meat. Opening Harp Barbecue was a no-brainer, but it's Harp's commitment to the craft that sets him apart. He does pop-ups all over the city, most commonly at Crane Brewing Company, but Harp hopes to open a brick-and-mortar one day. We don't really try to do necessarily Kansas City style, Harp says. Our goal through barbecue is to bring regional styles to regions where that style isn't available. My passion as far as it relates to barbecue has evolved from just cooking to making the best barbecue we can to, through all my travels, to trying to bring stuff into regions where it isn't currently available.
I tried to gain as much knowledge as I could on all the different styles and bring something different to a place where it's not of. That brisket, thick cut like is traditionally done in Texas, is their flagship item, but all of Harp's offerings are irresistible. His focus is on bringing quality barbecue to all people, regardless of dietary restrictions. Harp hopes to one day bring more barbecue to vegetarians, for instance. While Harp brings some new techniques to the area, he remains rooted in the combination of flavors, sweet, smoky, salty, and spicy, that he sees as the foundation of Kansas City barbecue. Harp sees the craft barbecue scene as the drive to move the entire culinary art form forward, while using the traditions passed down in the city's style. They certainly trend towards new school barbecue, though not with everything we do, says Harp. We just want to stand on the people that got us to this point, and stand on their shoulders and push us forward. There's a lot of people that gave a lot of blood, sweat, and tears to get Kansas City barbecue where it is on the scene. We want to stand on their shoulders to grow and push it forward. What excites Harp the most about Kansas City barbecue is the amount of true wood-smoked barbecue coming back to the region. Offset smokers are disrupting the popular gas-fired smokers of the past few decades, but slow-cooking the meat over quality wood is one that goes back to barbecue's roots. I think traditionally, as far as tradition in the last 20 years, Kansas City barbecue has been cooked with gas assist and old hickory or southern prides, which are smokers meant to mass-produce as much meat as you can, says Harp. But now I think people are kind of realizing that there's a legitimate product behind cooking with strictly wood. The thing I'm excited about is the amount of offset smokers coming to Kansas City, because I know every time I see one of those that Kansas City's taking another step forward to being the best we can. Justin Easterwood, the man behind Chef JBBQ, always had a passion for cooking over a fire. He's been doing barbecue since he was 18. Like Harp, Easterwood does his barbecue in an offset smoker. Easterwoods is located in the cafeteria of the Beast, ironically, off 13th and Hickory in the West Bottoms. The street name was a bit of a calling for Easterwood and serves as a reminder of what he considers Kansas City flavor, Hickory Wood, the only kind he uses. I'm a Kansas City guy, born and raised and grew up around Kansas City barbecue, says Easterwood. I always loved researching other regions as much as possible. I try to do the same thing with my menu today and take the best from all parts. I've always thought that's what Kansas City is all about trying to have a whole good pot of awesome barbecue. Kansas City flavor finds its way into everything. That base, a hickory wood smoked barbecue that is equal parts sweet and spicy, is important to Easterwood. Even as he brings in techniques and styles from different regions, he is committed to maintaining that underlying Kansas City flavor, which he says is about love more than anything else. Kansas City barbecue has got a lot of tradition into it, Easterwood says. The people who started it, Henry Perry and everyone, there was a lot of love that went into that barbecue, and I still think that rings true today. With as many barbecue joints as there are in Kansas City, there's a lot of people that have a lot of love for their barbecue out there. It's what it's all about. Techniques change, and Kansas City-style Q is constantly evolving. Even those that are firmly rooted in tradition have necessarily departed from the city's founding father of barbecue. Creativity is the one thing that remains constant. Perry's barbecue came to prominence because of his creativity. The use of a different region's styles in today's craft barbecue scene mirrors Perry's use of all different kinds of meats. The experimentation in spices and sauces is exactly what has been done for hundreds of years in the city. The commitment to innovation, serving the community, and constantly providing the best barbecue possible is the ultimate foundation of Kansas City-style barbecue. That and the use of hickory wood. Each of the plethora of barbecue joints open today differ in their offerings but remain committed to that cause. Then, of course, is the love. Without love, no one would be doing barbecue here. 
the love of providing for the community and of making the best barbecue is enduring, no matter what innovations come along. The future of our barbecue could be chef-driven, utterly traditional, or small batch craft barbecue, depending on who you ask. But the future of Kansas City barbecue has room for all of these differing methods because that's how it began. Our oldest tradition is one of innovation, and the future of our city's queue looks bright. And now, ladies and gentlemen, as poor always and usual and frequently and as you love to hear it, it's time for Nick's Music Corner. Hello, I'm Nick Spasic, music editor for The Pitch, here with this week's local music recommendation. Originally released in June of 2020, Casey Moe Stoner Doom 5-piece Chronic Lethargies EP No Sleep Only Jams got a cassette release last week. Naturally, it dropped on 420 in the collection of seven jams and improvised cuts recorded during the COVID-19 quarantine sees the band stretching out and getting weird. Weirder even than their debut EP Sleepless, which also saw a cassette release on the same day. Both are courtesy of local label Skunt Productions, who have been putting out handmade tapes of local noise, punk, and metal acts since May of last year. This gem of an instrumental track, Take Your Time, like the herb, not the duration, sees Chronic Lethargy getting kind of jazzy while still sticking to the psyched-out jams for which they've become known over the last couple years. You can cop the tape at Skunt Productions, that's S-K-U-N-T, dot bandcamp.com, and the rest of the band's discography is at chroniclethargy.bandcamp.com for you to dive into. Here's Take Your Time.
Worlds of Fun is now accepting applications for all positions, including ride operators, lifeguards, cashiers, cooks, and bartenders. All positions come with competitive pay, paid training, and best of all, free admission. Leadership positions are available. Working at Worlds of Fun means that you'll receive worlds of friends, worlds of flexibility, and worlds of experience. Literally, it's Worlds of Fun. Get a head start now on your worlds of opportunity. Apply at worldsoffun.jobs. You know what? Not enough people uh, opting away from the dot com to the dot jobs. Pretty cool move. Uh, or text fun to nine seven two one one. Anyway, today's interview. You know how you get the emails from local organizations, and they've always got that little thing. It's like, hey, come meet the staff, and you're always like, I don't want to meet the staff. It's fine. I'm I'm not even reading the rest of this email. I don't know why I want to meet the staff. The one place I don't uh, don't do that is when we get uh, the letters, the newsletters from the Kansas City Public Library. Uh, and they recently had uh, an email go out that uh, included a feature on. Um, the person that is behind their events planning. And I, I feel very bad for anyone that works in events. Uh, I know a lot of people that work in events and it's been a hard year. Uh, but Leslie Case uh, is uh, the case manager uh, for events over at the library. Uh, and her backstory was fascinating. Um, she uh, she had dreams of being an actress and pursued that sort of thing. And then um, instead of winding up on a, on an SNL, which was sort of the dream wound up running stuff out here and is uh, clearly still uh, hilarious and talented. And I see exactly why she is the person uh, bringing stuff to life at the library. So uh, we got her on a Zoom call uh, just to discuss, like, all right, uh, when does the fun come back? Uh, and uh, what can we be expecting? So this is the interview with Leslie Case. Leslie, welcome to the podcast. Would you introduce yourself to the audience? Of course, I am Leslie Case. I am an event technician with the Kansas City Public Library. But also, according to the library's newsletter, you should be at SNL. <laughs> that was the original plan. You know, I fully anticipated my entire life story to unfold. I would graduate from college 
college, I would move to Kansas City briefly. I would move on to another city where I'd become involved in, in the comedy scene and eventually and undeniably be asked to join the cast of SNL and then move on with some signature characters, do some movies, then move into my dramatic roles and win a few Oscars. That was, that was the plan. But I ended up here at the Kansas City Public Library, but I've been very happy. I feel like it's probably better in the end. Um, <laughs> so, as somebody who toured as a comedian for a long time, I assure you, you're not missing any pleasant memories uh, from that. <laughs> so what has the library been up to? Uh, obviously, COVID has made for an interesting year. Um, I'm, I'm a supporter of the library, and I keep signing up to volunteer for things like uh, helping to file books away and stuff. And uh, every month or so, they're like, yeah, still not yet, though. No, that doesn't yeah, seem not like... Quite uh, yet. <laughs> yeah, we have um, at the Kansas City Public Library, we have been very deliberate about the steps we've been taking um, during the pandemic. We had we were, of course, under full lockdown right at the beginning, just like everyone else. And whenever we reopened, it was a pop in pickup, which you, we are still doing. And so everyone who has a Kansas City Public Library card still has access to all of our physical materials that you could always check out. You just want to place them on hold, have them sent to the, uh, the branch of your choice to be picked up. And once you get the notification that they are available for you, you can go to the branch, you call or text the phone number to let them know that you are there to pick up your holds. And then they will call or text you back to tell you that you are able to come on in and pick them up. And um, lots of our locations are open for computer usage. So we definitely wanted to make sure that we were providing the opportunity for people to come in and use the computers. And right now we are still doing limited capacity, um, appointment only computer, uh, you know, appointments so people can come in and get the internet access they might need. And as far as events goes, um, lots of people might not be familiar with the fact that under normal circumstances, the library offers so many free public programs. And they are normally, our big events are at our central library downtown and at our plaza branch. And we also have so many great events happening at all of our branches all over the city, but definitely check out our caseylibrary.org to uh, under the events to see all of those amazing events that we're going to have once again, once the quarantine is lifted. Um, but you can also check out our YouTube because we have been doing live digital events during the pandemic. So we have all of those online available to watch and more upcoming live ones here throughout the rest of the uh, pandemic. Now, can I, can I use a service where I have somebody from the library do what I used to do and just walk through the aisles and look at everything? Because like that, can, <laughs> is there somebody that can put on a little camera and do that for me? Because I, in my head, like reserving books from the library, I'm like, I know I could, but my joy is always just being like, that's a weird book. Let's take that home. Yeah, and that is one of the things that I know our patrons miss a lot. And that I'm going to pitch that service. That would be amazing. Um, and I, it's one of my favorite things to do. I don't know how many times I've just walked through the stacks and been like, oh, I want to look at this book of mid-century photographs that was put together by Kodak. Um, and stuff. And so we are really hoping that we can get those patrons back in so that we can just have people just browse in our stacks. So we are very excited to have that 
happen once again. I can't give you a date for sure, but keep an eye on it because it may be happening sooner than you think. When will you go back to live in-person author conversations? Because I had a book come out last year and I have several hundred copies that showed up on its release date of May 1st, 2020. And I still have every single one of those books (laughs) that I would love to upload. Uh, No, when when are you planning to to get back to to live stuff? Is it just uh, listening to, to what the city and the CDC have to say? Is it your guys' own set of rules. <laughs> right. So we are still being, our administration is still being very deliberate about when they want to welcome people in mass back into an indoor space, right? And so our opening for the actual libraries will probably be earlier than our um, reopening for large events. Right. We are looking forward to having live in-person events again, but I wouldn't expect those right away after we reopen. It'll probably be a couple of months before we feel comfortable inviting everyone to be seated right next to each other in an auditorium. Um, But we have one of our favorite longtime series that we have done, we've, we've done this uh, series since before I even started working with the library, and it was called Off the Wall Movies. And if anyone out there is unfamiliar with Off the Wall Movies, we have a rooftop terrace, a beautiful rooftop terrace at our central library downtown. And every summer, once a month, we would show a movie on the rooftop terrace um, on Friday nights during the summer. And last summer, unfortunately, We couldn't do that because of the pandemic, but we are working out a system where we are going to be able to do live off the wall movies once again, but we'll be moving them over to the roof of our parking garage at the Central (laughs) Library downtown. So keep an eye on our social medias, on our website to uh, see whenever we're going to announce what movies we're going to be showing and when we're going to be showing them. Love all of that. Uh, last question here today. Um, what would your recurring character on SNL be? What were you bringing oh. to the table here? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I think that it would have to be... Okay, I grew up at Lake of the Ozarks. And right. to a lot of people, that sounds really strange. Um, they forget that people actually live in those tourist areas. And so I think that my recurring character on SNL would be that one really kooky manager that you had at every single tourist destination that you worked at during the summer as a teenager. The one that wore really weird cut off jean shorts where the pockets stuck out at the bottom, always wore sunglasses even inside, was a little bit weird. I think that that would be it. I, I can see this person and I, I believe that you would be the one to introduce the country to them. <laughs> Leslie, thank you so much for your time today. I'll like, let you get back to the stacks. Oh, well, thank you so much. Have a great day. Today's episode of Streetwise is brought to you by Authentic Kansas City, uh, which hosts a weekly safe meetup on Saturday evenings so you can make meaningful connections. So the whole deal here is that uh, authentic relating is a practice that they do. It's uh, described as a fast track to friendship. It's a collection of game type things that cultivate meaningful relationships in a deep way. And on a practical level, it's a gathering with people and fun activities built to deepen friendships. And I mean, who doesn't want more friends? Who doesn't want to get out? Who doesn't want to finally 
uh, meet somebody that you haven't met because you were screaming at them on Twitter. That's the only way I meet people these days, and I do not wish to meet them. Uh, it never, it has never been what I wanted. Good goodbye to that man. Uh, the group gathers every week on Saturday evenings at 5.30 in Loose Park for authentic relating game nights. Authentic Kansas City believes in creating a safe space to connect in real life because they take the issues of online isolation, loneliness, and human connection very seriously, especially after years spent trapped in our homes. Uh, so yeah, they know. I just keep meeting the mad men from Twitter. I'm tired of yelling at them. I don't know who they are. They don't seem fun. I would rather go to Loose Park and play a game and make a friend. Pre-registration is required, so find them at AuthenticKansasCity.com or Facebook at AuthenticKCMO. Authentic Kansas City, a safe space to connect in real life. And ladies and gentlemen, that has been this week's Streetwise podcast. Uh, we are an extension of the pitch in Kansas City. Uh, please find our magazines on stands wherever you can in the city. There's literally a thousand locations. It would be hard for you to not find it. But if you can't, the magazine is also available online through our website where we are constantly, constantly publishing new stories uh, and Holy crap, has this been a week? Uh, I, I need a breath, uh, and uh, I, I, I can't take the breath because I can't really breathe in my old uh, nice uh, pants that I'm going to wear to this wedding because I think that the button will pop. They really do not fit in them, uh, and there is not enough time to get them to a tailor. Uh, thank you for supporting what we do. Uh, if you ever feel like tossing us a buck or two to keep the lights on, that would be much appreciated because, oh boy, is it hard out there. Uh, I hope that you're taking care of yourselves. I hope that you are enjoying the spring that is coming despite the, uh, surprise snowstorms every once in a while. It seems nice out. Today it was hot and windy and a hot wind is, you know what, that's a new, different weather than what it has been and I'll take it. Uh, be good to yourselves, be good to your friends, pitch in and we'll make it through. Thank you so much. This was a production of the Pitch Podcast Network. The Pitch is Kansas City's independent source for news and culture. Check out thepitchkc.com to see more podcasts from us, including information for how to subscribe to The Pitch or become a sustaining member. Story ideas or feedback? Write to tips at thepitchkc.com. Pitch in and we'll make it through.